This is our Suburb Trends report for May 2021 and we'll be looking at where prices are moving across the country, either up or down, not many down, and why they're moving. In this episode, we'll be discussing rental vacancy rates and looking at whether these are having an impact on listings. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. And I'm the data geek, Kent Lardner. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report which experts can you trust to get it right the elephant in the room.com.au Vacancy rates across the capital cities are trending lower, and while significant numbers of Melbourne and Sydney apartments are still vacant, the story everywhere is very positive for investors. But it begs the question, are investors exiting the city unit markets of Sydney and Melbourne or holding firm? Now, Kent, what is the data telling us about this one? Well, I wanted the story to be a really exciting one of doom and gloom and lots of people exiting, but it's just certainly not the case. I've analysed one week of data, one full week of data, and it came up with around 15% as the volume of properties that were, or the proportion of properties that were ex-rentals. That's not very high. I've, I've seen it higher in past analysis. So at this stage, I think the stories are pretty good for investors with the exception of a couple of CBD pockets. Well, we'll talk about CBD pockets in a minute, but I'm curious when you say in past analysis, you've seen it higher. Can you give us some examples? I'm guessing mining towns, but are there others? Well, this is at an aggregate level. So if I tally up all total listings now, you certainly will see some suburbs or some regions where it can get up well above 30%. Mm. But overall, the last couple of times I've done this, I did this for the AFR a few weeks ago, trying to cover a, a headline story. And it really, I struggled. I have to say I struggled, but it was a little bit higher then. I think it was about 18% the last time I did it. But uh, this time around, using data from last week, it was only 15%. So it's not very high. Isn't the roughly sort of number of lists Properties owned, say roughly around thirty percent, are owned by investors. So if it's only fifteen percent of ex investors, then it's dramatically under their market share, I guess. Yes, it's a really interesting thing. I, um, mm. I, I, I had a look at obviously the the change in the proportion of of rental properties between twenty eleven and twenty sixteen using the census, and it was only around give or take about one percent. But it will be nudging higher. There is no doubt that the proportion or the percentage of rental tenure will be high in next census. How, how big? We don't know. However, I think there was a bit of a penalty against a lot of investors or investor lending a few years back that's certainly rearing its ugly head now and having an impact. And I can see that in the data with the, the rental crisis across most of the regions. But I think we'll probably still be in the low 30s, Chris, next census. It's an interesting one, though. If you say that 85% of the properties listed are ex people living in the property, so owner occupiers. Generally, owner occupiers are back in the market because they're, you know, wanting to buy something else to live in. And so it shows that even if we get have more listings, that eighty five percent of those people are back in the market. So that yes, supply goes up by one, but demand also goes up by one. 
Whereas investors, you know, if you sell your investment property, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go and buy another investment property. That's right. Yeah. It really shows that we've got, even if we get higher listings coming on, that doesn't mean we're going to see a massive drop in demand at an aggregate level because 85% of them, based on your data, are still going to be out there buying most likely. Yeah, what, such a good point. It is. But what this data doesn't account for is how many of those rentals might have been rent vesters that exited the city and finally took up residence in that rental property. I did the same thing. So there's a few things that can happen to that, you know, the life cycle of a rental property. Well, yeah, those people, those 15%, We've got clients who are selling investment properties in order to help them upgrade their home. And so that listing, if we see a listing of an investment property coming on, so that would be, you'd think that that's not more demand, but actually it is because by selling that investment property, it now allows them to spend more money in the owner-occupier market. Although they'd be selling two to buy one, would that be fair? Uh, yes. Yeah, so they would, in that situation, just thinking one who sold his investment property to then also sell his home, then also to upgrade. So you're right. So it's, but it's still more demand going into owner occupiers by the cash, the profits of the investment property going into sort of allowing him to go and spend more money on a home. It's such an interesting, this is a very complex issue because it taps into affordability or unaffordability, doesn't it? And this is not really the remit of this particular episode of the podcast, but something that's obviously being a big topic at the moment of discussion is around affordability property given price rises. And and usually that's sort of pointed at first home buyers. But um, I was watching Alan Kohler on Q&A the other night saying, well, property is affordable because because money's so cheap, that's the problem. <laughs> the affordability is, is, is purely what's pushing the prices up, which is a, a different way of looking at it, but equally true. And then you've got the issue of affordability of rental property. And when you've got investor stock that's in the wrong locations for where people want to rent you know it's there's other areas there's stock available where there's no demand and there's no there's no stock available where there's lots of demand for rentals correct yeah well covid has certainly changed the market dynamics and pushed a lot of demand outside of the cbds obviously coupled with the the exodus of students but Mm. you know we can just see that that I'll, i'll blanket it and call it the housing market because really this crisis or lack of supply applies to anything that's a, a freestanding house or a house. Mm. And that's across the board and that's hitting a lot of the regions very hard with extraordinarily low vacancy rates right now and pretty much the whole of WA. Yeah. But but the, the problem, when we come back to Sydney and Melbourne for a minute, is that so you've got oversupply, and Brisbane for that matter, you've got oversupply of units that has been the case for many, many years, regardless of the fact you had overseas students, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And now you've got Sydney sort of heading very much in that same direction and then you had COVID. I mean, you've been doing some research on some loss, the stories of losses, so there's been very sad, some very sad stories of losses coming out of Melbourne unit, unit market for some time now. Yeah, absolutely. I'm still seeing some pain uh, ahead of, of specifically Melbourne City is the, um, the SA3 region that I'm looking at. And whilst sales volumes are probably the bigger driver at the moment, making the inventory level stay high. So there are fewer listings than there were a year ago in Melbourne City, mm-hmm. uh, you know, around 1,300 less at the moment but there's close to 20% fewer uh, sales on average. So as a result, inventory levels are still quite high, and that's my favoured metric in terms of which direction prices are going. So a lot of these problematic markets in terms of 
uh, inventory levels and increases in inventory are centred around Melbourne. It's interesting though, isn't it, that the actual number of listings is lower than a year ago, you're saying? Yes. But obviously demand has dropped even further. Correct. You know, it could be worse. You know, I guess the, a lot of the doomer and gloomers, doomer and gloomers, is that even a term? The the property bear, bull, bear <laughs> getting myself <laughs> confused here, the property bears were basically saying there's going to be this avalanche of listings, everyone's going to be bailing, et cetera, et cetera. But what you're saying is that actually that's not the case at all. There's less listings. There's fewer buyers but less listings. And I think that's, I guess, somewhat heartening, but obviously they're still poised for loss in many of them. Yeah, well, I didn't expect that. I didn't. I, I only did that listings change twelve month analysis this morning, and I expected it to be the other way around. Equally, as I expected to see a lot higher ex rental volumes, and the, and it simply wasn't the case. So I think, by and large, what you know, the, to sum up the situation, we've got pockets of of high density units that are certainly are markets that are weak. But by and large, the rental market is repairing rapidly, even in many of these uh, higher density areas. It's phenomenal. So one of the things that's standing out for me is the question we asked a few months back was, well, vacancy rates are quite high in and around Melbourne, as an example, Mm. but prices weren't adjusting. Well, we're seeing that price adjustment now. You mean the rental pricing? Correct. Or, yeah. Right. So, so we're seeing you know rents. I'll, I'll, you know, pick on some of those those city uh, rents. They they're coming down. They're adjusting, and as a result, we are seeing uh, a shift in the uh, in the vacancy rate. So they are starting to adjust and repair. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? That it hasn't actually played out as terribly as I guess would have been expected. And I do love the fact you had a hypothesis and. You're being proven wrong. I always find it fascinating when I do some research too is to you start off thinking I'm so certain something's going to be a certain way and, and it may or may not turn out that way. So this is pretty interesting stuff. What about inventory levels in other cities? Yeah, so if I, I'll just zoom across, uh, just talking at the city level for houses, inventory levels across most of the areas, like I, I'm looking through, most of them are very, very low. The only one that's standing out at the moment is Greater South Australia. That's kind of clustered as you know the regional SA, and that's standing out. That's a little bit higher. I'm just looking at the list here as we go. No, that's three point three eight. I've I've just grabbed the wrong one. So I'm looking down the list. There's only there's one in here that's six point seven eight months of inventory, and that's that is that's the rest of SA. So there you go. So uh, it's, it's it's really low at the city level. It's extraordinarily low. I guess when you've got very low listings, it doesn't all of a sudden overnight become a lot of listings as long as if you've got a lot of demand. And so even if more listings do come on, as long as there's more demand than there are sort of new listings, this problem could go on for some time. And I think you've seen, Veronica, that you've seen a, probably a supply shortage maybe of good properties probably for four or five years, I imagine. Mm. And you're thinking, oh, you know, more stuff will come, more stuff will come. But Who's to say that, you know, when we look at 2022 that we still don't have this problem of still very low listings because whenever good stuff comes on, it just gets easily snapped up by demand. Well, that's it's interesting. ACT's been the one I've been calling out for some time. So it's got the lowest inventory levels out down to around 1.24, yet prices have jumped up. The average asking price for a house in the ACT in the last 12 months has jumped up by close to $80,000, yet 
the demand is not abating one bit. So it's uh, it's amazing what, what's happening in ACT. As I've said, I, I believe that it could be the highest priced capital city within a year. Yeah, I was listening to some agents here, uh, you know, they do their market updates and they were saying, look, you know, prices have been obviously extraordinary growth, but we are seeing sellers that are getting more confident to, to list their property and, you know, take advantage of the current hot market. But you have to ask, where are these sort of vendors going to go? You know, that's the always the challenge, isn't it? If you could sell your house for a certain price and take your profits, what are you going to do with that? And when you look at regional areas, which maybe are downsizers would have looked at before or, you know, uh, bigger, older apartments, these markets are still just as hot as their house. And so a lot of people go, well, you know, there's not actually a viable option for me to sell because I have nowhere else to put the money. And so the best option for me is just to hold on and keep living here because is that what you're sort of seeing, Veronica, when you're sort of talking to agents and things like that? Yeah, definitely that fear of, well, what am I going to buy, mm. you know? So why would I sell? Why would I get out of this market? Absolutely, that's that's uh, causing people to hold on from listing their properties and rightly so. It, it is quite interesting because, of course, when I'm in good deeds, my business, obviously, we, we deal in a finite area. It's, you know, that 10K radius of the CBD. So we're doing, you know, low and offshore, eastern suburbs, uh, inner west. And so it's it's a fairly small world and, and so much so that, you know, when a property sells – then you know that the next listing, you know which property they bought. It's it's that oh right they bought that. You know there's there's that quite openness around about the the domino effect of once something sells. You know and and even at at auctions you you know everyone's just thinking okay well what have they got to sell. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's starting to be audible. Buyers are saying it. It's quite hilarious. And and but it, it is the way you know. And but we did see quite remarkably in 2016 we saw listings really start to fall in significant numbers. And it was about a third in suburb after suburb. We could see year on year from the previous year to 2016, there was about a third drop in listings numbers. And that has stayed relatively stable until this year when we're seeing it drop even further. So, you know, you were saying before about people waiting for the the stock to come back on the market. I think you just got to, this appears to be for whatever reason, I don't have an answer, but this transcends, you know, market boom, market market sort of slowdown. So booms and troughs, peaks and troughs. It transcends COVID. It transcends lockdown. It transcends, you know, everything going crazy again. You know, we've had clearance rates in the 50s. We have clearance rates in the 80s, and yet there's still consistently low listings in the in the areas in which I'm operating anyway. So. I don't know what the answer is. I think we just have to get used to the fact that this is that this is the reality. Yeah, and I guess combined with low listings, you may get surprised that more demand actually comes, you know. Of course. Investors could enter the market, which is already sort of happening. The media is sort of reporting out. We saw a bit of a change late last year that, you know, some clients, even more conservative clients were coming to us and saying, oh, I think maybe I should buy an investment property because they'd seen the market grow so strongly late last year. But it hasn't been like an avalanche. No. You know, all the media sort of talked it up last week and said there's so many investors out there, it's growing 12% in a month, biggest growth ever. But that was off such a low base. Yes. But if we if we start to see investors sort of come back, which isn't happening yet, that's really going to compete with a lot of first-time buyers. And, you know, if, if you start going to auctions and you, you've waited for more listings, let's say, and then you start saying, actually, you know what, there's more competition here. There's 
other people upgrading, there's investors, there's downsizers. And so that's a bit of a fear I can see playing out at the moment is people are saying it's so hard to buy, there's very low listings, I'll just wait. But I think waiting six months may even just be as frustrating because you'll have more demand coming on even if there's less, more listings. It's funny, I was talking to Megan about this on our other podcast, Your First Home Buyer Guide, and it's really about this idea of getting into the market, when the timing, getting into the market. And, you know, I was I was really reflecting on this the other day because there's people that are thinking, oh, it's too hot. I'll just wait or wait till there's more stock or wait or wait or wait or wait for whatever. And the, the thing is, if you choose to wait and you can buy now, you are betting that prices will fall. And that is, yes, one day prices will fall because markets go in cycles, but they don't fall to where, they don't always fall to where they are at at a given point, you know, so they may fall, but if the peak is tomorrow, yeah, you're probably better off. You, you wait, but nobody knows when that peak is going to be. And if the peak is in a year's time, you're probably better off not waiting. And the fact is you run an extraordinary risk of not buying at all ever if you decide to sit on your hands when you're not in the market. And if you buy and then you buy well, you buy a good asset and you focus on the fundamentals and not FOMO and all that sort of stuff, then you will be in the market. And even if prices come off at some point, you've got a good asset, just sit tight, enjoy living in it because you're in it for the long term and you'll be fine. And, you know, but that is the caveat, a good asset. And, but, but waiting if you are ready, is really folly. And it doesn't matter what the market's doing, it, it is folly because the risks of you actually missing out forever are higher than, you know, than the, the probability of the prices coming off the ball. Yeah. yeah, I think we saw that in the, the blue chip suburbs. The eastern suburbs north is always the one I'd like to go to and I think we spoke about it a good, well, it might have been six months ago or so, we, we counted up how many vacant properties there were and we spoke about mm. how many uh, of the um, the the owners uh, fully own their property uh, in the eastern suburbs north. So look, I, I think for me, I look at those suburbs or those markets, they're blue chip ones, and when things get tough, they flatten out. They just go flat for a while. Yeah. Um, so that those markets traditionally haven't uh, come backwards. You never say never, but at the you know the, the the history, the evidence says that those blue chip markets, even when things get tough, just go flat. And and talking about the the, the eastern suburbs, what's happened there is, you know, uh, it had close to 900 vacant properties or around 6% a year ago. And since then, prices have adjusted for the two-bedroom unit. The typical two-bedroom units dropped by about 50 bucks. There was no fire sale. There was, you know, no no concern. Uh, average asking prices for units are $30,000, $31,000 higher than they were a year ago. Mm. So, and inventory levels and, and uh, are extraordinarily low, down around 1.8 months and vacancy rates are adjusting down to normal. So things got back to normal pretty quickly in the eastern suburbs. So, okay, so, uh, you know, there's... In those areas where there's still high vacancy rates, such as inner Sydney and inner Melbourne in particular, and, and Victoria is particularly exposed to the overseas student market too, isn't it? Yeah. Rents have been adjusted in order to keep those properties rented or to reduce the rate, rates to some degree. There's been not a huge influx of ex-rental property on the market. Are there any areas where we are seeing more rental stock have you have you come across that uh, an increase in 
available. Ex-rental stock. Or, no, no. So across the board, I just haven't seen anything that's worth writing about. The one that probably did stand out with the analysis, and it was a, a one, one week of, of sample, Townsville had a fairly high proportion of ex-rentals uh, relative, but it was still a low count, but relative to everywhere else. So Townsville, uh, Perth, Northwest had a, a flurry and the Gold Coast. But again, these numbers are so low, it's hardly worth calling out. What I would call out was what was interesting to the study I did about a month ago. And the only conclusion I could come up with was that a few people had cashed in. So Chris, you mentioned earlier on, you had some of your clients that were selling up their investment property to dolly up their owner-occupied property. The study I did a few about a month ago found that a couple of suburbs like Leichhardt stood out or the region of, of Leichhardt stood out and that had In about, Queensland? No, Leichhardt, Leichhardt in Sydney. Oh, right. Okay. Um, in the west, yep. In the west, uh, Wollongong, Warringah, Pittwater and a lot of – and Manly. So these were areas that had a, a fairly high proportion. One of them had um, – oh, so just looking at it now, I've just got to put my goggles on. Leichhardt had 34% extra rentals from the sample. It was a one-month sample. And, and Warringah had 30%. And – the only thing I could put it down to was that these people were cashing in on good times. Mm. I guess it's interesting with investors, and this is sort of what we're trying to talk about here, is that is this investors going to sort of try to cash in and you know list their properties with the market being a bit better and the data starting saying, no, not yet. Anchoring bias is something that's so powerful. Whether you buy $1,000 of shares or you buy a million-dollar investment property, no one wants to lose money and mentally we'll do everything we can to not go through that pain. And so we'll hold on to shares for for years and years and years, trying to hope they'll go back to what we paid one day so we can get out, not just cut the cord. And the same with properties. You know, like if you bought an apartment, let's say in Brisbane and you paid four fifty and it's now worth four hundred, or you bought a house land package in the outskirts of Perth and it's it's it takes a you know, it takes a lot of guts to sort of take that pain on and, and to sell your properties. So the problem is when when prices do recover or they do go to close to what someone paid and there's a lot of people paying a similar price like apartments in Melbourne all around that sort of four five hundred mark, you'll start to see a lot more listings and that, that will keep prices at bay. And so you're not going to get this huge, you know, jump in prices beyond what you paid. So, you know, your best case is sort of walking away with your money back because as soon as it gets to that price, there's a lot of other people thinking like you that have held these properties for a long time and say, I'm going to sell when I get my money back. And so is that sort of what you're seeing, Ken? Absolutely. In terms of your, and I think that yeah. drives the, the, the flat market analogy that, yeah. you know, uh, people just uh, have that emotional hook to say, I don't want to look like an idiot. So as long as I, <laughs> as long as I sell, sell it for what I bought it for, uh, even if the opportunity cost is huge. Yeah. It is funny how people like that though. They're just like, you know, I got I got back what I paid for it and so it's like a, that, it's okay then. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's so not okay. Uh, entry and exit costs and hold oh, costs. And- I know. It just it but you know, it's I, I, maybe I'm a bit cruel, but I want to I want them to face it so that they don't do it again, you know. <laughs> Own it. Own it. You know, own, feel own the pain, <laughs> and then you then you won't do it. It's such a stupid thing again. Break it's through terrible. the loss barrier. That's it. That's it. Oh well, the God! The problem with it is, is the opportunity cost, obviously. But it's sometimes you know we had a client last week who think about buying an investment property. You know, got a house, lots of equity, happy with the house, got heaps of borrowing capacity, super conservative, but realised they they could go and buy an investment property. And you know, part of her story was that you know they bought a place it was in Adelaide. 
and they bought an investment property there and it did nothing and they had it for years and years and they lost money on it and they, they haven't had the guts to go and buy another investment property. And so if you sort of rewind it, you know, the opportunity cost is, yeah, on that property, they could have done this versus another property, but also it's the time that they've potentially not gone and bought this investment property and they're super nervous going in and buying something now. Like it's, it's sort of that emotional opportunity cost as well of that sort of poor decision and they understand now just through educating themselves that, you know, that wasn't so much an investment property was the problem. It was a, it was the wrong property. And, but yeah, it's that emotional sort of impact as well, which is hard to quantify. It is interesting though, that you say, okay, opportunity cost is, we always think about it. That's what else could you have done with that money over that period of time? Whereas what you're saying is opportunity cost extends beyond that because they, re, they refrain from making a, uh, other investments in or better investments that they could exactly because of that poor experience. And so therefore, you know, they're, they're, they're further and further behind. And, and it, is, it is true. I, I meet people like that too. There's that, that fear around that. It's, I think fundamentally because they didn't understand what they were doing in the first place. They sort of followed, you know, the impossible dream thing that everybody's, uh, you know, it's that easy to buy an investor property. All you need to get into the market, you know, like uh, this is going to be the next hotspot, you know, all, all those sort of beliefs around how you make an investment decision and to be discovered only after you've done it that it uh, was all bull. And then then they had to go, well, well if, if those decisions were wrong, if that information was wrong, if those assumptions were wrong, well, how do I find, how do I make the right assumptions? How do I actually mm. get the right information? And unfortunately the voices that are selling those impossible dreams are vastly louder than those like us that say, please don't do that. It's true. I say I was actually saying it yesterday. The spruikers are winning mm. uh, in many ways, or the the loudmouths are the ones that are getting the attention and succeeding. They've got the marketing budgets. <clears throat> mm. That's or why they're, just, they're shout, shouting louder than the the nerd sitting at home with a spreadsheet. <laughs> well, because a nerd sitting at home with a spreadsheet isn't making money out of giving good information, whereas the spruikers are making a shitload of money out of selling dreams. And I think the problem at the moment is, um, you know, through your data you're showing, Kent, is that, you know, you've got low listings, you know, prices are rising pretty much across the whole country, even for the poor stuff. And so a lot of people have gone down this sort of quantity strategy and they're picking, say, regional markets, having their sort of time in the sun. You know, opposite to that story I spoke about there where that person bought an investment property and then didn't buy another one, which is what a lot of ABS stats show is that, you know, most mm. people only have one property, 70 80%. The other sort of person I'm seeing also go hell for leather, the investor that's buying the quantity because they're going the short term is I bought that for 250 and now it's worth 300 and that's made a 20% growth and <laughs> I should then go and buy another one. And it really, that short-term bias plays into the opposite mindset, which is overconfidence. And someone just going and accumulating multiple properties and let's buy four in the next three months or whatever it is. Yeah. In the same town. In the same area. So I think <laughs> yeah. that's the, I mean, there's a couple of interesting things. A lot of the biggest rises in prices are the things making headlines. And mm. some of these areas are interesting. So I've got a couple of lists here. I've looked at two bedroom units and I've done this one in dollars, make it a bit interesting. But the region is Augusta, Margaret River, Bustleton. So down in that Bunbury area. So a two-bedroom unit 
down in that area. There's not a lot of them. No, I wouldn't but, imagine so. But, um, you know, it's only uh, you know, very few listings, but that's gone up by $60. So that's, but that's at that regional level. So it's a, a half decent sample. Rental you're talking about here? Yeah, rental, yeah. rental. ACT, so within that ACT, there's an SA3 called, uh, called Woden Valley that's gone up for $45. Perth, Southwest. In that just Perth appears and reappears constantly. They've gone up by $40, as has Noosa, as has Newcastle. So there's a quite a big list here, but probably the common thing is these aren't appearing in the blue chip locations. So that's a really interesting call out here that the blue chip locations that do have that capital growth, do have that consistency, et cetera, all the stuff that you talk about commonly, uh, Veronica and Chris, they're not the ones going to be making the headlines in the next three months. <laughs> danger, Will Smith, danger. <laughs> so you're saying basically the headlines will be going, you know, rental increases in these areas, yield increases in these areas, yes. great places to invest because you too can get rich on an extra 50 bucks a week. Yeah, yeah, and, and the same again. I mean, I'm not saying all of these because I've got like nooses in there, but nooses had a bit of volatility over the years. Mm. Newcastle's in there. Now, I'm never going to say anything negative about Newcastle. No. Ever. <laughs> but on the housing front, it's a similar story. You know, we've got you know 20% price rises in the far north of Queensland and then lower Murray. So these are, you know, th- these are off a low base for a reason. They, mm. they, you know, and you need to expand your search and look at other factors. It's not just about the headline growth rate and rents or yields. What What's the employment opportunity? What's the diversity in the economy, et cetera? So there's a lot more to it than one or two headline metrics. Hmm. Interesting. So that's where you're talking about where rents are rising the most across the country. Yes. That's basically what you're talking about there. Yeah. And you're sort of highlighting that's a bit of a danger zone. Uh, you'd never want to look at this data in isolation. You wouldn't want to look at a, a single variable, such as rental increase you know, or, or yield. You always want to look at it holistically, like the valuers do, like the sensible buyers agents do. Yeah, I guess it's really dangerous looking at rental increases because uh, big rental rises can happen because there's usually a huge influx of demand. Like you think about Noosa, it's a lot of people who – for example, are moving to the sunny coast and, you know, they're desperate to rent because they haven't got anywhere else to live and so they're going to push up sort of rental prices. It's whether the rental price rises as sustainable longer term, you know, and as more more listings sort of come to the market, whether it was just a short increase in demand. So you really want to look at longer term rental rises and rental rises have to coincide with capital growth. It's a sort of a big myth out there where you can get rents going up without capital growth. It actually goes the other way around. As prices get more expensive, more people can't afford to buy, which means more people are forced to rent. So that's sort of what drives sort of price uh, rents to go up over time. The problem is there, and this is where it gets a bit misleading though, when you've got a high capital growth area, there's an elasticity obviously in the buying population in terms of what they can spend to buy a property there, but you don't have the same elasticity with rentals because that's tied to incomes. So, you know, so you're not leveraging your income in the sa- when you're renting in the same way you are when you're buying. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So, you know, if you could uh, go six times your income when you're buying, whereas uh, there's also affordability. You know, people are willing to stretch for houses if they're going to live there long term and stretch beyond their means. But with renting, they're like, well, I don't really need to be spending, you know, fifteen hundred dollars a week rent. I'm, I, I want to kind of save for a house, or we can just rent an apartment. Like people are more conservative with somewhere they rent rather than 
something they're looking to buy. So you're right. But ultimately, the more, if you think about a longer term trend, the more that prices rise, the more people can't afford to buy in those areas and the more people can't afford to buy just generally. And so then that's what pushes up the rents, um, you know, in suburbs. Well, just- well, what I'm saying there, though, is that rents don't rise at the same rate rate that prices rise. So the yield actually gets worse and worse in yeah, good areas. Percentage does, but the actual, if you if you base your yield based on uh, current purchase price when you purchase a property rather than what it's worth in the future. Yeah, but you can't do that. There's People do that, but that's silly. You've got to base it on, on you know, the value at whatever time you, you're calculating it. So like, yeah, but that's that's if you're looking at your overall sort of yield on your portfolio. But as an investment, you know, if you bought a million dollar property 10 years ago and that property's gone to $2 million, your actual investment's a million dollars. And that's, so- but That's your yield, not market yield. Market, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, you know, when you're basing an investment decision, you should be basing it on what the future yield could be through rental rises rather than what the current yield today. So if I had two properties, one was a 3% yield today and one was a 5% yield today, and I was saying which one was a better investment, what I really care is how much a rent's going to rise over the longer term, you know, because that yield could easily go from 3% to 6% based on the current purchase price, and I could get capital growth as well. So, you know, I think this, it's just a, it's a point and reason you'll get rental rises is because more people can't afford to buy, which means those higher-income people will be forced to rent now, renting a house today is not the same price as it was, say, 10 years ago. So it's been a rental increase. But parts of the Sydney market, rents are probably similar to what they were 10 years ago. I yeah, think, some are. I think what yeah. I can see in, in, in what's happening is the the exodus is driving a lot of it of people actually renting first, then looking to buy. So they're pushing up the rents because they've got the money to spend. And then, yeah, their use case is very different to the local who is a long-term renter. These are a short-term renter looking for a property to buy. So you can see the, the rather large spikes in rents or the, 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 the large reduction in vacancy rates, and they are spread out, you know, without coincidence, spread out in a lot of these regional areas. Yeah, well, we've had a couple of episodes. We've interviewed uh, buyers agent Byron Bay, you know, interviewed Kirsten Craze, uh, uh, property journalists about that sort of that sea change, tree change impact and, and how that's affecting locals. It's it's a little unfortunate actually that those it's a bit haves and have nots, you know, is uh, the exit from exodus from the cities is is putting pushing money into rural areas that didn't have that same level of capital coming into it before. So it's it's an it's a many tentacled problem, this one, isn't it? It's huge. It's and huge. the people that are missing out on rental properties in a regional area, they're not going to turn around and come into the city and take up one of those units, are they? No, not with five kids. No. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, so what's? how do we sum this up? So, you know, you started off with a hypothesis saying, right, well, basically in certain areas vacancy rates are, have been rising quite dramatically, rents have been falling. We would have expected to see quite a lot of that stock hit the market as a sales listing and what you found is you haven't, that that's not what we found at all and, in fact, uh, I guess, what, what what do we draw from all this? They're holding. And my conclusion is most of these investors are holding. Vacancy rates are adjusting. If I look at you know, Melbourne, let's pick on Melbourne City, which is our go-to. Mm. You know, a two-bedroom unit down there, it's dropped away $120, a massive drop. Mm. Yet 
they're wearing that. They're holding. And I, I expected to see a significant proportion of ex-rentals in, in Melbourne City. Uh, I didn't. And what we saw is you know, vacancy rates tip below 20% or below 18%, the 17.93. It's, it's painful. Oh, but it's, it's so high. But, it, but it's fallen by 4.2% in the last three months and it is falling. Mm. So so I think a lot of a lot of them are, are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, yeah, I mean, there's so much positive talk out there, right? All the banks, you know, the market out there. So if you're an investor and you don't have to sell, which a lot of investors don't, interest only is much easier to get. So even if they're finishing their interest only term, they can just extend it for another five years. And then with the interest rates, they can fix, you know, at two and a half percent for three years interest only. And so as long as they've got a tenant, then the cash flow is pretty much going to be neutral or even potentially positive. And then there's no, and there's also talk the market going up. So why would you sort of sell your sort of investment generally now unless you had to? Yeah. Because there's no cash flow pressure, especially if it hasn't performed very well, they're more likely to probably hold it as well because it's you know the anchoring bias which we spoke about. So mm. it kind of makes sense now that we talk it through. But I was like you, Ken. I thought you know maybe we're going to start seeing the numbers showing investors are cashing in, but it doesn't look like that, which means hence why we're getting low listings and not even investors are selling. But it also means that they're not under financial pressure. Those that are under pressure are listing because obviously some are listing. But you know what I mean? Obviously they're they're weathering it and it. Low interest rates, interest only, whatever it is, no rents, you know, they're obviously weathering it. Yeah. So, you know, the whole picture of the recession, et cetera, et cetera, and there hasn't been playing out as, as you know, you would logically expect. Oh, a lot of us called it the cliff. I did. I expected mm. a cliff. Mm. No cliff at all. It's just this gentle, <laughs> gentle hill. <laughs> well, I guess it's like it's a like a knife edge, isn't it? So if you are selling a property uh, in the investor's mind, if they think that the price of that property is going to be less next year, they're more likely to sell. And if you're more likely to sell, then you're going to get more listings. And if you get more listings, then prices are more likely to fall because you've got more supply and then you're going to get more fire sales. So it's like it's just what happened in 2018 when the market started to fall you then started to, you know, create this negative feedback loop. And I think for investors, it hasn't gone down that direction, you know, because of lots of reasons, low rates, the payment holidays, et cetera. And so they got through that sort of potential for a negative loop and now it's gone into a positive loop, low listings, low rates, prices are rising. So I think that's also had a big part to play in it that we, it kind of, the story didn't get bad because of lots of intervention really. No one's got anything to say to that. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. All right. Well, I think that that's um, slightly shorter than normal episode, but we don't need to talk just to fill up airspace. So that's been a very interesting analysis, Kent. And, you know, I guess <laughs> the property market seems to be a lot more robust than, than is expected. Not to say that these are good investments. <laughs> just because people are holding on to them and not selling them doesn't mean that they're good investments. But it does, I guess, mean that uh, they're not going to be realising their losses in the short term. Yes, things are improving even in those weaker markets. And that's right. If you're not getting investors selling, then you might also get more investors coming to the market. And so you've just got to be conscious that this is definitely starting to happen. So if you are looking to buy or upgrade, etc., you don't want to be sort of in six months' time competing with investors, which may be coming to the market. It's a bit unknown yet. Okay. 
If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.